This is the Collective Resistance Podcast with your hosts, Leo and Fabiola. We will be discussing why we find ourselves resisting the narratives of the Common Collective, as well as why the Common Collective resists new information. All right, this is your host, Leo and Fabiola. I am Leo, and my beautiful wife, Fabiola, is sitting right next to me. Fabi, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, enjoying the sounds of the ocean in this little paradise we found. It is nice, isn't it? I mean, during the day, it gets a little chaotic with all the construction. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but the evenings are nice, and the weekends... Are the quite lovely. Are quite lovely. Yes, this morning was hard to concentrate at work. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. I uh, am excited about this episode. We've talked about this. We wanted to get a little bit more organized and uh, have some uh, little audio clips we could interject in, kind of talk about those, get people's thoughts on them. And uh, we've kind of got that prepared, so uh, we're crossing our fingers that there are no technical difficulties because I am learning uh, some new equipment here. But uh, what are we going to be talking about? The cases. Cases. And or the testing. And the testing. <laughs> and uh, I, this is something that we have had conversations on, like, my gosh, we, we basically since the start. I mean, I think it was when you found the Infectious Myth podcast uh, mm-hmm. and you started listening to, uh, what was that guy's name, David? Uh, David Crow. David Crow. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. He passed away in July uh, of a uh, uh, aggressive form of cancer. Mm-hmm. But God bless his soul. And, but he gave us a lot of things to think about, a lot of information in his podcast. Uh, I think it still exists, right? Yes. You can access it. And there are hundreds of episodes. He's been doing it. Uh, long before the COVID crisis, yes, talking about HIV and really just infectious disease uh, as a whole. And then he would intersperse some rather random topics that would seem here yeah. and there. <laughs> but uh, definitely look that one up. That is a great one. Uh, the ones since March when COVID came in, I would say that probably 60, 75% of those are about COVID since March. Yes, he wrote papers about it, about the mask he reviews studies um really good information he has a great website i think is the infectious has lots of information yeah so check that out if you get time uh the podcast and the website are fantastic reference points at least get you thinking from some different angles so as far as the test is concerned what i kind of wanted to do uh initially was kind of set the tone and when we started down this path with the COVID crisis you know I think like anybody else once they figure out there's a problem they come up with a way to measure or find out if uh, how that problem is spreading and one of those ways of doing that is through the testing or one component and so I think the, the common narrative is that, you know, there is this test out there. And I think people are maybe aware that the test can have some issues, but really understanding the mechanics of how the test works. Wouldn't you agree, 
Fabi, that the the uh, actual media never really has dove in, even though it's a 24-hour news cycle, they've really never dove in at length about the mechanics of the test and why or why not should we be putting as much credence or faith into it. What's your, what's your opinion? Yeah, I agree. I mean, when you hear the media, it's always about cases, even when we talk to people. You know, how is it going in your country? Like people ask me all the time, how's it going in Brazil? We have tons of friends from all over the world. And it's always about cases are spiking, cases, cases, cases. Uh, but what does that mean really, right? I don't think people easily make the association with cases and how we're getting those numbers and what are we comparing those numbers to? Well, and I think it's important to inspect cases, first off, just that, that word. In fact, I, was, uh, I work in technology. I was on a uh, conference call just this week, and we were looking at a, uh, the website, the COVID tracking website for a state that uh, we work with. And that uh, state has a fantastic site, gives a lot of data. Um, I was actually surprised I hadn't been to the site myself. And I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty impressive. There's a lot of statistical data here. It's real time. And uh, if you know what to look for, then it can really be a, a great tool for you. But the point that one of the individuals on the call was making, they said, is, you know, what does this page scream to you? And I had a lot of thoughts because obviously I've dove into the, the, the testing and, you know, real big on the page, it says cases. And um, so I have a, 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 a diatribe I could go into as far as what cases means, but I knew that probably wasn't what they were looking for on that call. <laughs> so I stayed quiet and uh, the gentleman who was leading discussion said, well, there's all this data, but it's not really telling anyone what to think of it. And yet when then we go to the news, and the news is consistently using the increase in case numbers as an opportunity to stoke fear. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yes. I mean, we're talking about cases, but let's talk about mortality as well, right? That's important. So if cases are rising, you would think that mortality would be rising as well, and that's not the case. Yeah, it will. And really, just cases in general, if you look at it, when you get a case, is that a case from someone who felt like they had symptoms and they went into the hospital and they asked for a test and then they got a positive test back? Or was that a person who went into the hospital for an elective surgery? And as a um, requirement, the hospital requires that person to perform a COVID test before they will move forward with their their procedure. And so that person, obviously, if that's the case, and they go in for, for uh, you know, a, uh, by, uh, you know a, a arterial bypass or something like that, and, and then they end up testing positive, you know, they'd say, oh, well, I didn't even know I had it. I didn't have any symptoms, you know. And so that wasn't somebody who would have gone in there otherwise because they weren't having any symptoms so then really uh, you know you could potentially make the case that that someone uh, is a uh, uh, could infect someone else but 
that's a scenario where uh, maybe that person is staying at home, you know, because they have other comorbidities like the heart problems and stuff. Anyway, th- there's a lot of detail. And the point we're making here is that that cases number doesn't give you that. Another thing that's interesting that we'll touch on in one of the video clips, or I'm sorry, the audio clips we're going to pipe in, is uh, that the PCR test, and that's what it's called, RT-PCR, and uh, that that particular test does not distinguish between um, virus fragments or the full virus. So when you test positive, that does not mean that any of the virus is actually still intact within your body. But your, your T cells could have already uh, mounted a defense and they could have destroyed those viral particles and the test will still look for those pieces, replicate them to the amount where they are measurable, and then it comes back as a positive. And so before I move on, because that's something I wanna, I wanna inspect, is there anything you wanna say about those pieces? Yes, yeah, so positive tests, I mean, we think of cases, positive tests, that means people are spreading the disease, but actually the test, a positive test, does not mean you're sick and also does not mean that you are you could infect other people yeah and and uh to kind of uh, expand on that the the uh, test pcr actually was not originally developed to be a test at all it's actually a process and a uh, uh, doctor by the name of carrie mullis he actually developed that test and he won the Nobel Prize for it. He actually developed it with another scientist, but he was, I think, the lead on it from what I've read. And uh, on a side note, he passed away in the uh, early fall of last year. So <laughs> <laughs> He's probably turning in his grave it, right now. Isn't it ironic that... Um, you know, this, this guy who invented this test, which we are basically uh, deciding the fate of the world off of, passes away. Now, he was, he was an older guy. He wasn't, you know, a super young man or anything. But, and I'm not saying there was anything sketchy that happened to him. <laughs> but I'm just saying it's just ironic because, you know, I'm sure he would be on several news programs, you know, talking about uh, the fact that, you know, his test may, might be being used improperly. Uh, but that's not the case because he's not around. And he, he, he exited just before uh, this all went down. Yeah, so the purpose of the test, I mean, the method is to make more of something. That's what it was designed for. It is not designed to detect in- infectious disease. That's not what the purpose of the me- method is at all. So it's very interesting that this is the test that has been used for other things too, like AIDS, you know. Um, but it's interesting that I even um, saw that the test is not like approved by the FDA. Yeah, you know, I, I've seen that in articles that I've read, yeah. And it's probably not approved for this purpose. So that begs the question, why are we using this test? <laughs> and we're going to get into that. There's a great clip that we're going to play from uh, our buddy Del Bigtree uh, that we think is definitely worth knowing about. It actually just came out this week, so we're going to uh, pipe that in. But to lead off, I want to play a very short, it's about a minute, it's a video clip of Dr. Carrie Mullis talking about what PCR 
is. And with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody. It starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can amplify one single molecule up to, a, to something that you can really measure, which PCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. It, it allows you to take a very minuscule amount of anything and make it measurable and then talk about it in meetings and stuff like it is important. PCR is separate from that. It's just a process that's used to make a whole lot of something out of something. That's what also, it is. Um, but, it's, but it's not, it doesn't tell you that you're sick and it doesn't tell you that the thing you ended up with really was going to hurt you or anything like that. All right, so that was Dr. Kerry Mullis, and I'm not exactly sure on the date of that. He looks quite a bit younger, and just the quality of the film uh, looks like it's probably in the early 2000s or something when he did that particular interview. But what strikes you from when he mentions those things? Yeah, and um, you're going to post the link for that. Yeah, all of the clips that we pipe in today, we'll put that in the show notes. So if you want to access those, you can you can see them in the flesh. Yeah, so interesting that he said that, you know, it doesn't tell you that you are sick at all. So why, again, are we using this test? Well, well so then let's break it open a little bit more. And so my understanding of PCR is that uh, what it's doing is it's not actually looking for the virus itself, the whole virus. It's not looking for the whole genome. What's happening is, is that you are picking a couple of small RNA sequences that exist within the overall genome. And then, so, so if we were to kind of use a metaphor, it's like if you're looking for a person, instead of looking for the whole person, you're looking for a hair and a fingernail. Okay, and then if you find the hair in the fingernail, then you're saying, well, look, the odds are good if I found the person's hair in their fingernail, then they're probably there too. And so then we can say, okay, yeah, I found that in the house. They must be in the house somewhere. Well, you can see how that just sounds flawed on the surface, but if we look at it specifically to uh, viruses, then we're looking for these two small snippets because obviously a genome is a very long sequence and these two very small sequences are just pieces of that whole and so let's say like i mentioned earlier that your t-cells mounted a defense and they destroyed this you know you had a low viral load the body recognized it very quick and said okay i don't want that here and and it gets rid of it and now you have all of these broken virus fragments all throughout your body but those small RNA sequences still exist they're fragmented well what he's saying in that clip here is that if we're focused in on just those RNA sequences and we program the test to look for those then we will go in find those and then the way PCR works is that it basically runs that part those particles that it's looking for through a replication process that is based in cycles. So every cycle that happens, it basically doubles the amount of that particular particle that exists. And then from my understanding, if you had enough of that particle in your body, which would be considered a, 
uh, heavy viral load? Because obviously you might have a little bit, you might have come in contact with it and it never really was able to replicate uh, based because you had a strong immune system or whatever. There just wasn't enough of it to mount a, a, a major replication within your body. But um, if they do a swab in your nose, you know, it might have been in your nose. And then if they do say the way i understand it say 17 cycles if you had enough viral load in your body to say that you actually were infected then enough of that material should have been replicated to be visible under an electron microscope but what we're seeing is that the tests that are being used in the u.s are actually um I don't know about all of them, but the major ones, like the top four that are being used are 35 cycles and above, some are 40 cycles and above. And the interesting thing is that the closer you get to 60 cycles, which is kind of this, this high end, the tests will always come back 100% positive. And it's really for the reason that Kerry mentions in that clip. He says that uh, uh, one of quote him specifically, but he says, you know, there are very few molecules that you don't have at least one of in your body. So if you run this test through the upper end of the cycle counts, then you will get it to replicate and you will get it to show up as measurable. And then somebody can sound important in a meeting because, oh, look, this thing exists. But it doesn't mean that there was enough of it that you were sick, that you were infectious, that anything. So then the question comes into if 35 cycles and above is useless, which we're going to play a couple more clips here to make that point. If 35 cycles and above are useless and they will return back positive results almost all the time, then why, are, why haven't we standardized on something much lower like 17 or 20? The other thing that I think is interesting about this is because nobody is talking about cycle counts, this is a component where standardization is not occurring. So if we are comparing the results in one state or one country to another country, we're looking at cases and we're looking at deaths, okay? We might also be looking at hospitalizations, but I, that data seems like it's very hard to get. So. If we're not looking at cycle counts, you know, Italy may be doing 35 cycles. United States may be doing 30. Uh, Greece may be doing 20 cycles. You know, and so what that means is, is that if we were to take each other's tests, you know, like the, the actual patients of Italy and put them through another country's tests with different cycle counts, they're going to get totally different case numbers. And so if that's the case and we are comparing ourselves with other countries, then shouldn't we be standardized or shouldn't we at least be educating the public on this whole cycle count nonsense? So I do want to play a couple more clips. Did you want to comment on anything about that before we play those clips? No, I'm excited to hear the clips. Okay, so we're going to play a clip from our buddy Del Bigtree over at the High Wire. Now, I do feel like I need to give a little bit of uh, preface because uh, uh, what I've seen when I post Dell videos like on Facebook is that people are like, oh, he's very animated, you know, and he's, he, he, he just seems like a, 
like a, a character and to me that really pisses me off i mean this guy's one of the nicest guys he's really busted his ass for you know the medical freedom movement and he's not a broadcaster he's turned himself into a broadcaster because nobody else would do it uh it's totally non-for-profit uh not-for-profit organization you know bootstrap and they just do killer research another important thing to know about dell is that he used to be one of the main producers on the show The Doctors on CBS. In fact, he won an Emmy Award for his work that he did on The Doctors. And he actually got into the medical freedom vaccine choice uh, movement because of the stories that were coming on to the doctors and he could not ignore those over and over and over again they kept coming in and the medical community that was around the show was really not able to uh, answer the questions that those parents had or nor were they really willing to and so he eventually i don't know the exact story but he eventually uh, found his way to uh, some additional friendships with uh, polly tommy andrew wakefield and uh, uh, he became one of the, the uh, executive producers of the film Vaxxed uh, from, uh, uh, trying to think, uh, Vax. I can't think of the subtitle on Vax, but um, that movie was fantastic. It's one of the, the, the uh, it's one of the best movies in the space. You know, they, they really do documentary. They do a great job diving into the subject around uh, vaccines and autism, giving you the real data and uh, there's a lot of censorship that came from that. But then when after that, uh, we've actually met Dell in person. And after he produced that film and then toured the country with the, the Vaxxed bus, he said, look, you know, we, we need to continue this fight for these parents. And he created the high wire and he literally created it, I think, in his home initially. Uh, in a in a room and you can tell from those early episodes it looks pretty ramshackle and uh he has slowly built that that uh user base up or that that uh that uh uh, viewership the audience and the show is so well produced now and he has such interesting guests and they they uh, uh have new episodes every thursday and it's about a two-hour show typically, and then he'll break that up, cut it up into many pieces. So I want to give him that plug and go to thehighwire.com. Also know that he's been a victim of the censorship that's been happening on Facebook. What did you want to mention? Yeah, so he runs the Informed Consent Action Network, ICANN, and they were the ones that actually got the FDA to tell the vaccine manufacturers to when doing their trials to use a saline placebo so an inner substance um to real since this is a new vaccine that's coming out and they've done such great work to really uh, protect the rights of people to have the choice of what goes into their bodies um, so we're all for, you know, we support them and we're all for. Well, and what's fantastic about them is when they do their show every week, you can uh, text the word ICANN for Informed Consent Action Network into their chat and you will automatically get a link to all of the sources for what they report on. So they're not just making claims, they're directing you to those publications, those studies, the uh, actual individuals that they're interviewing, their bios, all that. You can get that. You can also get that in the form of an email that gets uh, pushed out if you are somebody who donates to them. So anyway, I just want to preface that I couldn't have asked for a better person to be 
the spokesperson for medical freedom. I mean, this guy really gives his heart and soul to this cause. So anyway, let's go ahead and play this clip. It's a little bit longer. It's about nine minutes, but I think it's necessary, and I think you're going to be blown away by what we uh, hear in that. Biggest story here, I've been really excited to report this, okay. is um, the PCR testing. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of issues with this. Even Tony Fauci came out and said anything over 35 cycles with this PCR testing is, is, is uh, you know, not too accurate. And we covered um, this. We did a whole breakdown of how the cycles work, how the 45 cycles has the ability to be up to 100% false positives. Uh, which is yeah. unbelievable that they're using this diagnostic tool this way. We laid it all out. But there's sort of a new breaking story. It's no longer a problem that Highwire is pointing out, is it? No. And how did we get here? How, why are we even using this test? So in January, uh, a, a German virologist named uh, Christian Drosten, he created, uh, uh, he, he created a, a new laboratory assay to detect the coronavirus from the German Center for Infectious, uh, Infection Research. And he put out, uh, the, the WHO quickly picked that up, quickly, uh, picked up that guideline. Um, and the Euro surveillance also published that in their journal. It's an it's a infectious disease epidemiology journal. And it's called Detection of 2019 Novel Coronavirus by Real-Time RT-PCR. And that was in January. And that became so the standard. he's basically the guy that took, there's always been PCR tests, but he isolated the part that could detect the coronavirus for COVID-19 that could be used in a PCR test and say, hey, we're ready to go. We can start testing everybody. Yes, yes. Okay. And, um, a lot of people had an issue with that. They took to Twitter. Uh, a guy named Walter Akima went on Twitter and really questioned what, why the heck that thing was rushed so fast. He basically said, um, uh, of all the publications, no, re no research paper got reviewed and accepted in less than 20 days. One got accepted in less than 24 hours after submission, and that was the Drosden paper. It's, it's come to be known as the Drosden wow. Review. So. Um, now, the breaking news on this is this paper is being contested as is the and, and by extension, so is this new assay PCR test that is being used. And that's the PCR test that's being used really everywhere throughout the world. This is what's driving uh, the lockdown, right? I just saw, you know, California, you're not allowed out of your house. You can't get in a car, you can't get on a bicycle, you can't do anything because the PCR tests are showing that there's this dramatic increase in cases. We've talked about this. If coronavirus truly is a deadly disease, when cases go up, what should you see? You should be saying deaths go up, ICU going up, not happening. Deaths are not going up. They're still flatlined. This whole thing is a giant fake out, or at least it appears to me. But let's get back to the PCR tests that are driving the insanity around cases and the case-demic. So continue on. Yeah, it, the, so the PCR is being contested by 22. These are credible health professionals. They've done an external peer review because they're basically stating the first one was not peer reviewed. They sent it to Euro Surveillance Editorial Board asking for a retraction. What they did was looked at all components of the test design. The protocol recommendations were assessed. Um, they looked at the parameters and they examined those against uh, relevant scientific literature. 
And now this is a deep dive, so I would recommend anybody go into this, but I took some, some segments from it. And let's just read a couple here just to give you an idea what these tests, some of the issues with this test. So, and there's 10 of them. There's 10 major errors in there. I just okay. took a couple out. Uh, right. Number three, the test cannot discriminate between the whole virus and viral fragments. Number six, the PCR product have not been validated at the molecular level. Number Whoa. seven, the PCR test contains neither a unique positive control to evaluate its specificity for SARS-CoV-2 nor a negative control to exclude the presence of other coronaviruses. Number eight, the test design in the Corman-Drosden paper is so vague and flawed that one can go in dozens of different directions. Nothing is standardized and there is no standard operating procedure. And number 10, we find severe conflicts of interest for at least four authors, in addition to the fact that two of the authors of the Corman-Drosden paper, Christian Drosden and Chantal Ruskin, are members of the editorial board of Euro surveillance, which may explain why it was peer reviewed so quickly or put in that journal so quickly. Now, this is something that's very interesting and it speaks to the cycling. And this is uh, this is directly from the paper. We've talked about the cycling. They, they go right in. This is probably the most concise description I've ever seen. And they say about the cycling, if someone is tested by PCR as positive, when a threshold of 35 cycles or higher is used, as is the case in most laboratories in Europe and the US, the probability that said person is actually infected is less than 3%. Whoa. The probability that said result is false positive is 97%. My God. Oh, we're destroying the world with this test and it's 97% inaccurate. Did you? This is not me. This is not some, you know, somebody, a reporter out there. This is a this is a pretty large group of scientists involved in this too, right? Authors on Absolutely. on this rebuke of of the PCR test. Yeah, there's there's 22, and these are not um, run of the mill scientists. These are researchers. These are world renowned doctors uh, and academics. People that have held uh, positions in pharmaceutical companies uh, such as Pfizer. Um, now, let's look at the conclusion of this paper. I know it's okay. a long segment, but it's so important. So they say, in light of our re-examination of the test protocol to identify SARS-CoV-2 described in the Corman-Drosten paper, we have identified concerning errors and inherent fallacies which render the SARS-CoV-2 PCR test useless. If, if there's a wow. headline, that's it right there. And finally, Useless. they say a decision to recognize the errors apparent in the Corman-Drosden paper has the benefit to greatly minimize human costs and suffering going forward. Is it not in the best interest of Euro surveillance to retract this paper? Our conclusion is clear. In the face of all the tremendous PCR protocol design flaws and errors described here, we conclude there is not much of a choice left in the framework of scientific integrity and responsibility. Boom. Wow, Jeffrey, that's gigantic. That's gigantic. We have, and this really is behind this entire pandemic. Without the false positives of this PCR test, none of this story adds up. I mean, I feel like every single week we bring another explosive bombshell. I've got another one coming up in just a few minutes here. Folks, look at this. The scientists are telling you, you are being lied to. They are using the worst diagnostic tool in the history of science, really, to drive a pandemic that does not even appear to be real because it's 97% false positives. Wow, that's huge, Jeffrey. Um, you know. Let's, well, let's, let's yeah. give Christian Drosden the last word here. Okay, um, that's please. a bombshell. It's hard to really... It's hard to really report past that, but um, 
since he's not here to talk, we'll look at an old interview that resurfaced. This is from 2014, so that's almost uh, seven years out now. Uh, Drosden considered PCR tests to be unsuitable. Holy moly. <laughs> so wow. it says, when MERS cases surfaced in Saudi Arabia in 2014, the authorities there decided to use the highly sensitive method of polymerase chain reaction PCR for testing. Drosden said, quote, the method is so sensitive that it can detect a single genetic molecule of the virus. If, for example, such a pathogen flits over the nasal mucous membrane of a nurse for a day without becoming ill or noticing symptoms, then it suddenly becomes a MERS case. Where previously terminally ill were reported, now suddenly mild cases in people who are actually very healthy are included in the reporting statistics. And he goes on to say, in addition, Drazen sharply criticized the media. He considered the pandemic surrounding MERS to be largely media made. He says, quote, in addition, the local media boiled the matter up incredibly high. In the region, there is hardly any other topic in the TV news and daily newspapers. And in conclusion, medicine is not free from fashion waves. In that time, the WHO recommended that only those cases be reported as sick where an antibody test was carried out was positive. Drazen agreed with this opinion. So he knew. He knew that this would drive false positives. It would dry a panic and a narrative and the media would use it. But this time, instead of being against it, he celebrated it and gave us this crappy, world-renowned pile of steaming you-know-what to drive a pandemic, the worst diagnostic tool maybe we will ever look at when we look at this in our review mirror in history. If you like Okay, so I know that was the first time you were hearing that. Yes. You, you hadn't seen it, so what are your thoughts? It is, I, I was just thinking, okay, why would this man, you know, uh, say the test is not suitable, and then all of a sudden he writes this paper and it's reviewed in 24 hours. I mean, is somebody uh, blackmailing him? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it's almost like he is a known critic, right? He, yes. he, he made a big deal about this before, and now he's essentially the spokesperson for it, yes. for doing it, the same way that he had just lambasted them in seven years prior in 2014 around MERS. So, I mean, it's really beyond belief. And are you hearing any of this on the news? No. I mean, I mean, I haven't heard a peep on the news from this. It's just cases, cases, cases. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? How do we get people money? Because we can't let them open their businesses and all this. But look at the players that are involved in this. Is this ridiculous? And so that actually brings us to the man of the hour, which is Dr. Tony Fauci. And he's actually chimed in on this, too. So even people who might be saying, oh, well, you know, we have the secret weapon of Dr. Fauci and, and he wouldn't, you know, lead us down the primrose path or anything. Well, he's actually gone on record essentially saying the same things, but in a little bit more nuanced way that makes it seem not like as big of a deal. But it, he's basically admitting the same stuff. So let's go ahead and listen to that clip. sort of uh, evolving into a bit of a standard that if you get a cycle threshold of 35 or more, that the chances of it being replication competent are minuscule. Mm. So that if somebody, and you know, we do, we have patients and it's very frustrating 
for the patients as well as for the physicians, somebody comes in and they repeat their PCR and it's like 37 cycle threshold. But you never, you almost never can culture virus from a 37 threshold cycle. All right, so there he was essentially stating the same thing. He's saying you can't really culture a virus from a 37 cycle test. And so if almost all the tests are 35 to 40 plus cycles, some of them 45 that we saw in some of the reporting, then where are we at? Because we are recording all this data for cases and cases are getting the world in a hysteria and almost everybody is using cases that are not culturing virus. So then what are we doing? We're just kind of jumping through this hoop and as they said in the Dell clip, anything over 35 has a 97% false positive rate. So there's really two things here. Why aren't they going down to a more acceptable cycle count of anywhere from like 17 to 20? I mean, heck, I think we'd see night and day difference if they even moved to something like 25 cycles. But again, we're staying at 35, 40, 45 cycles. And so what's interesting, because the news is not talking about cycle counts with these tests, this is ripe for manipulation. And, you know, people say, oh, you're starting to get conspiratorial. Well, I'm always looking at what they're not talking about. Because remember, we have 24-hour news networks. They are just looking for things to talk about, even if they seem a little bit uh, in the weeds. They have to fill 24 hours of news. So the fact that you really can't find anybody who's discussing this and seeing I mean, I think we've, we've established, and I hope people listening are saying, hey, yeah, that is certainly interesting. That gets my, my interest peaked. I want to know more about this. So why isn't a major news network diving into this? And then the second piece is, what if somebody changes the required cycle? So he's even talking, uh, Fauci's even kind of uh, putting it out there that they're thinking of standardizing and it sounds like they're thinking of standardizing at a lower cycle count because he's admitting that 35, 37 is essentially unculturable and it's useless. So whenever that happens, number one, are they going to send out a press release in uh, February or March and say, oh, uh, we have reduced the cycle count now to 25 cycles and we're seeing half the case count that we were before, maybe even less than that. Uh, I'm, I mean, Come on, really? They're, they haven't talked about cycle count at all. Are they going to start talking about it then? But what's the narrative going to be? The narrative is going to be, oh, look, we really pulled it together. And, you know, we all... Or the vaccine. We got our vaccine. Yeah, the vaccine has come <laughs> out and it's really made Maybe an impact. Maybe they will wait for the vaccine. Exactly. And, and now all of a sudden we're seeing all these low case counts. You know, we must have had success, right? All the while, the standardized case threshold has been lowered to 25 and no one knew okay yes and and just to note we've been following the vaccine trials of course and they are using rt-pcr as you know the the measurement for efficacy you know and for diff, the control group um the placebo and the regular control group and 
I'm thinking the cycle count on those is like 44. Yeah, I mean, we've seen them as high as 45 just with the tests in hospitals. So how can you tell efficacy when you're like that high? <laughs> and, and we're going to dive into that in another yes. episode around the vaccines coming out. But, you know, we want to tease that because we want to get you thinking this all connects, right? Because one thing is leading you to the other because it's all a component of the next. And Fabi and I find this very interesting because, you know, we have this background we mentioned like in our first uh, episode around having to understand the science and understand the uh, uh, the ins and outs of this process and really I 100% believe that you know the media wants you to think it's too complex you can't fathom it but it's really not and that's what's so brilliant about like Dell and his program because they don't shy away from the actual science. He will even tell you, okay, look, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this piece. We're going to dive into the, uh, the actual science. So if you're not into learning or you don't like looking at charts and stuff, then you might want to tune out because he's not just going to gloss over and tell you this is what it is because I wear a white lab coat and you need to believe me. We're actually going to show you the data and we're going to, and, and, and here's the thing is, it makes sense, right? You can see it up there it makes sense. Two plus two equals four. So, so now we, hopefully what we've done here is establish that there is at least some significant doubt in the test. And the test is what's driving the case number. So now I do want to premise one other thing here. And this is something that even Fabi and I, we, we, I don't want to say we butt heads, but we, we, we definitely, I think, see it a little bit differently. But we do understand that people are getting sick, okay? Now, what they are getting sick of is of debate. And I'm open to all discussions, and I think Fabi and I, we know more than anyone that environmental factors are huge at play, and they're not really being discussed at all. You know, air pollution, uh, you know, the comorbidities people have, the medications they take, the toxins they're exposed to. What did and you getting say? sick compared to what? I mean, if we look at the this winter, right? So we my microphone's a little off. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, compared to what? So now the flu apparently has been eradicated since COVID. I mean, there's like the the cases are way down. It's because masks were a big success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, something to think about. What are we comparing this all with? I mean, we have had, uh, you know, people get sick, people die, but now we know the testing is questionable. So how do we even know what people are getting sick from? You know, could it be um, going to the hospital for treatment? And when we were talking about ventilators, you know, nine out of 10 people that would get on ventilators would die. Um, yeah, and it wasn't the, uh, it was not the sickness. In fact, they found out after the fact that really it was the, the treatment, treatment was killing them. Yes. Well, and so, and so that's interesting too, because I don't know that we've had a really good um, retrospective on those early deaths it, to look and say, okay, look, early on we were we were frantic and we were going crazy and we had so many people dying, you know, what if we were able to take like that first 60,000 and say that, you know, 
God forbid, but 35 to 40,000 of those 60,000 died because they were put on ventilators before we kind of had some of these doctors like, um, you remember that young Dr. Kyle Sedell mm-hmm. that came out, put that video out where he was saying, hey, you know, we're seeing some strange things. These people are walking in, they're undersaturated on oxygen and protocol tells us to put them on a vent. But normally when somebody's that undersaturated, they're out of it, they can't communicate, maybe they're even totally passed out. So we're not having a conversation with them about putting them on a vent. We're just deciding to do that because that's what protocol is. And now people are presenting with like, you know, altitude sickness. And, uh, you know, they haven't been to the top of a mountain, but they have this altitude sickness. And their oxygen uh, uh, enrichment in their blood is low. So they're asking, well, you know, can you wait as long as you can to put me on the vent? And they're like, that's weird. We've never had to have that conversation. Yeah, and one of the highest predictors of uh, this pandemic outbreak is actually pollution in the air. So could that be contributing to the problem? And again, compared to what? Because we had millions of deaths uh, from tuberculosis around the world every year. you were just looking at some numbers yesterday, right, around the flu yeah. and children. Yeah, so like children, um, we were talking before the, the, the podcast started recording that uh, uh, my kids deleted my notes <laughs> that I took, <laughs> but, but I was looking at like the last three years for the flu, and I know you're not allowed to compare the flu to COVID. I know that's, uh, isn't that an interesting phenomenon, you know, how the media and the people on one side can just make something like just comparing something. I mean, God, we can compare anything. We can compare uh, beach sand to ice cream. We can do whatever we want, right? I mean, there are uh, attributes to compare. There are things that are totally unrelated. So flu is certainly in the wheelhouse that we can uh, compare it. And so I was looking, and I think that we had like 30... 5,000 deaths last year to flu. We had uh, 62,000 the year before that, and then we had like 38,000 the the year prior to that. So we can see that the flu uh, fluctuates quite a bit. And I had posed the question to Fabi. I said, you know, when do we, when is the line in the sand with the flu where we say, oh, okay, the flu is pretty bad this year, I think we all need to mask up, okay? Quarantine. Quar- well, quarantine, mask Lockdown. up, or, or force kids to remote learn and all that. Yes. And, and so I thought about this, and one thing I wanted to lead this episode off with, I wanted to kind of take people back in time, you know, kind of get you to close your eyes and think back a little over a year ago. Your kids were just going into school in 2019, and your kid starts to get, you know, the sniffles has a... Uh, um, temperature and showing a lot of the telltale signs for flu okay now i know a lot of people might take their kid in but a lot of parents have to work or you know whatnot they might just drop the kid off at grandma's and you know give them some nyquil and 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 let them uh, uh you know push through that watching a little bit of tv or something so I want you now to oh and, and then also what what if you don't have anyone to drop your kid off you got to go to work a lot of parents, I think, would send their kid to school with the flu. Yes. And, you know, that kid could... I mean... 
I mean, we, we don't... I don't think a lot of parents would do that in America. I, I guess it depends. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think... I mean, I can remember... It's not that my, my, my mom sent me to school, I think, if I complained enough. But, you know, there were times, I'll bet you I had the flu, but I probably had it low grade. Oh, yeah. You know? And, that was and, when we were younger. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, maybe I had something going on. I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to stay home. I'm going to school. I, you know, I'm, I, I want to play in the kickball tournament or whatever, <laughs> you know? So... So, but I mean, it, it wasn't this thing where it's like this security protocol, we got to keep people home. But those kids were going to school, they were potentially infecting other kids. And you know, if we could somehow go back and look at the data, you know, like if we look at um, last year, I think it was like 200 and uh, I think over the last three years, it was something like somewhere between 250 and 500 kids a year would die from the flu. Now, so far this year, at the time of this podcast on uh, early December, I think there's like 78 kids who've died technically from COVID, and that's between zero and, and uh, 17 years old. So we can already tell that, that even though COVID is supposedly much more infectious, we know that it does not really impact Do children. Do we know that? No, well, I'm saying, I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying if, you, if you're believing the... RO, you know, that's, that's being pitched out there. Because remember, we're in a situation where we're either, we're either going to play by the rules of the data that they give. We, we can have conversations both ways, but if we play by the rules that they give, okay, which is the RO number, okay. The then royal they? The they, yeah, you know, <laughs> to, Tony, you know, Dr. T, right? <laughs> then... The CDC. The CDC. Then we... Uh, can say that that uh, the flu is much more deadly. I think we, we figured out yesterday it was like nine times as deadly uh, for children uh, for children as the as then, as COVID is. Then COVID. But yeah. we've never, as a society, sat around and debated. You know, should we be sending these kids to school in masks? Okay, because you know you could catch the flu from another student because students may go. They may be asymptomatic even. Right. And you could get it, and, and, and certainly of those kids that have died, especially in the last three years from the flu, you know, there's a good chance they probably caught it from someone that they went to school with, if, you know, if that's the, uh, uh, those are the rules that we're all following. So why have we never had that discussion? I mean, I think flu, I think everyone would agree that flu has barely been a blip on the radar. It is at most the the tail end news story uh, or bumper story. Hey, flu uh, flu is up this year by X percentage. Go get your flu shot. It's almost more of a marketing opportunity for the vaccine. But they're never diving in. They're never uh, consuming entire news cycles, especially in the twenty four hours news network. You know, and going back to the environmental. Um influences it just happens with the flu that uh, the outbreak is around the time that fields across the country are getting sprayed yeah it's it's a great point uh you know that that documentary we saw kiss the ground it really showed you know in the in the fall when they do the spraying you know they, they have those uh those uh, heat maps and whatnot that are showing the atmosphere and mm-hmm. how polluted it is mm-hmm. from everything that's, that's mm-hmm. happening. And that's a major environmental 
uh, catastrophe, right? It's a lot of toxins that are in the air. They're circling around. I mean, we've seen the benefits of being in fresh air climates with yes. our kids who have severe allergies, Huge. yet nobody's talking about that. And so you have to ask yourself, well, yeah, it's just one component, but it's a major component. And, and you know, we are firm believers, and I remember the, the, uh, the metaphor that was used that really hit home was when you look at, like, a child, like, we're obviously very in touch with like our son's situation that he went through uh, being injured uh, he had a toxic injury and somebody explained it as okay the 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 child has uh, an innate ability to detoxify themselves and everyone's is different right so if you want to look at it as a metaphor say that every kid has a trash bucket or can and each kid has a different size bucket okay they're, or each they're, person or each person has a different size bucket and so that bucket can get filled with things, you know, whether it's pesticides on food that we eat, whether it's uh, toxic chemicals in the cleaners that are around mm -hmm. us or the construction materials in the homes that we live in that are off-gassing chemicals, mm -hmm. the pollution in the air from, from uh, our factories and, and cars and whatnot. Skincare products. Skincare products, all of that stuff. The pans and pots and pans you cook in. So that wastebasket within the child continues to get filled. And obviously... If some children have a bigger wastebasket, which means their bodies have a greater ability to detoxify, then they're going to be able to take a lot more garbage. Insult. Insult. But then the ones who have the smaller ones, that's going to overfill. You know, what happens when you put 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bucket, right? <laughs> the, the shit starts to spill over. And what that means is you start to see things, you know, autoimmune issues like eczema. Uh, you start to see. Uh, maybe ticks or something, you know, that they might be trying to just get out this toxic, you know, uh, 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 I don't know what you would call it, a, a backlog within them. They're just trying to work it out in any number of ways. And so... You get inflammation. Inflammation, then. yeah. Inflammation in the nervous system, digestive system, you know. Weaker systems in people are different, um, so it may affect people different ways. Well, and so, so the greater point we're trying to make is that when we were trying to say that people are getting sick, there's also this thing called attention. Okay. Now, what I mean by that is what you put your attention on becomes your reality. And so some of, some of you listening, you may have heard stories about people who have split personalities who are able to actually change their uh, nearsighted to farsightedness based on the uh, psychological split that they have. And that has actually, you know, been scientifically measured and whatnot. They may be allergic to different things depending on the personality that it's expressing at that time. Yeah. So one personality may be allergic to oranges <laughs> while others are not, but that's still the same body. So there's so much more about the human body that we just don't know. And how do we know that what's going on with our environment, you know, the destruction of our planets, our water, our air, our food, even the clothes we wear, you know, is sprayed with flame retardants how do we know that this is not affecting our health well and, and the broader point is we are put right now inside this um, 
this vacuum of the 24-hour news cycle around COVID. And we are in many regions of the world forced to stay home. And many people do nothing but consume this all day long, the fear around it and, you know, the potentiality. Now you have just about every ailment. I mean, I'm, I'm being exaggerating here, but, but, you know, the, the, the list of symptoms and uh, attached uh, potential long-term side effects to COVID is so long, it's like nobody gets sick from anything else now. It's all just lumped into COVID. And that actually, you know, is, is, is we have an attachment to that too, because in a lot of ways, you know, autism is similar, right? All these, a lot of these kids have different uh, physical a- uh, issues, ailments, but they're all lumped into this. this well, uh, neurological too, you know, behavior. Some children are, you know, very eloquent, you know, expressive. Other children are nonverbal. So it expresses in different ways, but that's another you know, another ailment that we now have pushed into the, the mental illness arena, like our bodies are, you know, our, our brain is di- disconnected from our body. And we don't really look at it as a whole, all the physiological symptoms that go with it as well. And what could be causing that epidemic, which it's, you know, grown at a very alarming rate. And why are we talking about, you know, COVID so much? And why are we not talking about autism? Well, and, and, and that is the, the broader point. I know I got off on a tangent there, but we're in this, this vacuum of, of just COVID. And after being in this for, you know, what is it, eight months now? Maybe more if, the, you, ta- if you consider the lead up with what's ha- what was happening in, in Asia and whatnot. But the psychological toll is yes. immense because of the fact that so many people are in the dark and all they're being fed is fear and Mm -hmm. fear is, you know, it was funny. I had a conversation with my, my dad and, uh, uh, he probably won't like me mentioning this, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I remember we were talking about stress and, uh, you know, I mentioned that I was stressed and, you know, it's impacting my health. And, and he said something to the, to the, um, to the effect of, uh, well, you know, you're going to be stressed, but what does that have to do with your health? You know, and I'm like, and I'm like, what does it have to do with your health? I mean, people who are overly stressed are more apt to contract cancer and stuff like that. I mean, or or just get sick. Because, just get sick in general. You know, cortisol, elevated cortisol level, levels, have the tendency to suppress your immune system, so you're more apt to getting sick after stressful situations. Just a way of your body to cope with the stress and sometimes just force you to stop and lay in bed. Well, and now that we're getting back into the winter, you've got, and we're going back into these proposed lockdowns in many regions and whatnot. I mean, I think you have a lot of people, especially in those upper age brackets who, you know, are afraid to even be with their younger family members. Mm -hmm. You know, what does that do to them? What does that do to their brain? What does the brain then do to the body? And we're seeing a lot of these strange symptoms and they, I mean, again, this is, I guess, a little bit speculative, but I mean, I'm just saying we're not talking about that as far as how that psychological impact. And we're just saying, Oh man, it's all COVID 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 COVID. Yesterday when you were telling me about your notes, you were, you mentioned alcoholism, right? Suicide and the rise of 
uh, spousal abuse because spousal you can't get abuse. out of the home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we aren't talking about any of those things. And, you know, obviously they'll get little blurbs here and there in a, in a blog post that you might catch somewhere. Weren't you talking about um, alcohol killing? I mean, there's a big number of, of people, right? Do you remember what that was? Uh, there was a... We have, we have been trying to ban gatherings, but we haven't really been alcohol, and alcohol kills more than. Well, so th- th- this was. Uh, I wanted to kind of make this a weekly uh, thing. Was like a meme of the week, <laughs> <laughs> and so this was one that came up, and it really kind of hit home. And so I'll, I'll read it out to you here, and it's quoted as saying, "If they can make the entire world population wear masks in four months." Why can't they make the entire world eat vegetables or exercise? If you can close businesses at will without a thought for anyone's livelihood, why not close the junk food producers or the porn industry? If junk food, alcohol, and cigarettes kill 21 million people every year, why are those items constantly available? Are you awake yet? Yes, that was that was it. Yeah, so, so I mean... It, it, it may, again, it's, it's not in the conversation, and it makes you wonder why we are putting these people out of business for a test that at the cycle rates they're using is 97% false positive, and people can't protect their livelihoods. They're, they're forced to ask their government for assistance. And a lot of these people, you know, I have never built a business on my own. I've always worked a job and I've always, you know, really looked in awe at people who have said, look, I'm going after my, my passion, whether that's starting a restaurant or whether that's, uh, uh, making a product or whatever that is. And to think that you could invest that time and money and effort in building that and be successful and get it off the ground and then have it taken away from you by, people who are not looking at things i mean there's either one of two things happening they're not looking at things deeply enough like we're talking about in this podcast around the testing and and the data that's coming out of that or they are purposely ignoring it for other purposes now what those other purposes are we won't speculate here uh, but it's one of those two things because if they were looking at the data and they did really care, then I think we would be uh, reacting to this all differently. Don't you agree? Yes. I mean, if even the, you know, here in Brazil, and I hope there isn't another lockdown, but um, the beach here is closed part of the day. And in studies, vitamin, you know, 80% of um, the patients that have gotten sick with COVID uh, were vitamin D deficient. So here we are, you know, free vitamin D. Just go to the beach, go outside, get exposed to sunlight, go for a walk, breathe in some fresh air. All of those things now are uh, banned. You know, you're not supposed to be doing that if you're outside, you're supposed to wear a mask. Um, so that is interesting. I mean, if vitamin D is the issue, why can't we go outside and get, you know? Well, and why aren't they? Get some sun. Why aren't they? Um, you know, we're talking about sending money to everyone. Why aren't they issuing vitamin D to every address 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I actually did read that they were doing that in the UK. They were actually sending out, I think, vitamin C and vitamin D. I don't know that that happened, but I did catch that in, our, in an article. Now, that was recently. So, I mean, I was like, wow, you know, that's amazing that they're doing it because I haven't heard about them doing that anywhere else. And, but I was also thinking, wow, it took them seven months to do that. Yeah. I mean, I heard Fauci finally give vitamin C and vitamin D some some kudos just like in, I think it was either September or early October. I mean, we'd already been in this. We'd been through a huge wave. and mm-hmm. it After YouTube banning. Ba- banning people for talking about <laughs> vitamin C and all or, that. Or, you know, vitamins for, for treatment. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's really weird. There was another... Um, there was another meme let me just see if i can find it um and it was intriguing to me yeah here it is right here i don't know who garrett kramer is i think he has some type of personality i just uh, instagram actually uh recommended him <laughs> which, which i thought was funny because he doesn't he doesn't fall into the narrative they haven't he, he must not have uh, fallen into the bad algorithm yet but he says, you know, here, in my opinion, are three things that don't occur during a pandemic. Number one, people don't make money off of it. Okay, that's number one. We know that's happening. I mean, look at the, uh, the billionaires list. They, they're up like uh, over a trillion dollars. Um, number two, news outlets don't conceal possible solutions to it. <laughs> we, we, we've seen that over and over again. And then number three, people don't argue about whether or not it exists. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, just my opinion, I could be wrong. All three are happening right now. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it just gives you pause. And uh, I think that's what we want to do here in this podcast is just give light to it. We want to try to bring some of those things together. And then, you know, hopefully a lot of you know us that are listening and we're really hoping that even if it's just our immediate circles that are listening to this, that you'll find it helpful and it'll get you thinking. And um, at least, yeah, yeah, and and uh, because again, there can be differences of opinion, but you just have to start asking yourself when they're when they're muting people, you know, and and censoring them. What, what's that all about? I mean, why can't I have a different opinion on? I mean, it doesn't mean that the people who are um, making the policy are going to do what I say, but why can't I have a different opinion? I don't understand why we have to mute that and, and, uh, and censor everyone's voices. I mean, that doesn't seem like what I grew up believing America was about. And I don't think it's what you learned America was about, you know, after becoming a citizen here. No, no. I think that when I was in college, one of the interesting things I noticed, it was that really I felt like you was, helping me think teaching me the process of thinking through things because my upbringing here in brazil was all about you know going through school and memorizing things not really thinking what are they for what do you use them for uh and my education the u.s and high even high school you know it was it was a lot more um expansive and um you could apply what you were learning. And it is really sad to see right now that, you know, the land of the free has this huge conflict, you know, even amongst friends, you know, where you can't even talk about COVID at all, 
you know, either you care about people and you believe in it or you don't care about people because you don't believe in it. So Yeah, it's one of the it's it's binary. Yeah, it's binary, right? And and there's just so much more. Well, and and something else I just want to point out that was kind of interesting because, you know, I thought that that if it would happen anywhere, it would happen in the U.S. as far as standing up to this. And, uh, you know, as far as like shutting people's livelihoods down and their businesses and not trusting patrons that, you know, they can take the risks that they're willing to take, you know, to to go out and and perform And there are businesses that are, I mean, there's, they're far in between, but there are businesses that are standing up to it. There are no, there there are, but but we need more. We yes. definitely need more because we we need it to be the lion's share because they can't they can't police us all right and they can't they can't uh, uh, punish one if they're not going to punish everyone. Are you talking about Mr. Global. Mr. Global, yes. <laughs> we'll talk about that in another episode as well. But but I did also want to point out too that that where I was a little bit let down by America is that, you know, we're not standing up in mass numbers. I mean, we, we do have some protests going on that are small, but if you, and, and you may not be aware of this, but in Europe and whatnot, there are some massive protests that have been happening in Germany and, and France and whatnot. And I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, hundreds Denmark. of thousands and millions of people that are getting out and saying, this is messed up. This is not right. This is screwed up. And, uh, you know, they're getting the big fire hoses poured on them to disperse. They're arresting. They're being beaten with billy clubs. And, 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 and I was telling people that this is really the situation we're in, is that the war's not going to be fought, you know, out in the desert wearing fatigues with rifles. I mean, this is, this is a war that's going to be fought in the hearts and minds of people and saying, hey, use critical thinking. I realize that the the uh, educational system doesn't teach critical thinking look it up what it is and 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 start doing it okay because you don't need to be a phd to understand some of this stuff and understand that it's being manipulated for somebody's gain and you know there's too much at stake for us to stay uneducated because it is inconvenient to do that work it's just too much at stake so you're going to have to do it uh, otherwise, you're well. You're you're seeing what comes with not being educated, and we hope that we can provide some insight, at least some some uh, rabbit holes for you to go down. And uh, on that note, do you think we're good? Yes, there was one more website I was trying to find. There is actually a a, a coalition of of doctors around the world questioning the pandemic. Um, was that the um, what do they call that uh, I can't find which is a bummer no I remember that too uh, let me see if this is it Uh, oh and I also want while you look that up I want to say something too Um, we're seeing more of this like you know I I saw somebody I'm connected to on Facebook and they were uh, they were saying you know I'm so sick of people who don't believe in science and obviously science is in quotes uh, as if science is one thing meaning that whatever the powers that be are pushing down as science is the only science and that you know there aren't tons of other reputable doctors and scientists that have put out uh, research and information that might be counter to some of those narratives but you have to remember 
who is, who, who's making the money off this? Follow the money, okay? The money is happening at the top. It's happening at large, gigantic conglomerates, Facebook, Amazon, Walmart, okay? These places have increased their value, you know, it's starting to get to exponential at this point. And, and really, even more so because they've not only uh, pulled some business away from competition, they've actually eliminated the competition. The, the, the competition isn't even able to serve their customers uh, because they're being forced to close down and they probably won't ever open, um, which we'll talk about that in another episode too. Uh, there's some very interesting stuff from an economic standpoint about how that, uh, that works. So if we can kind of wrap our heads around it in a cogent enough way to deliver that to you, we're going to do that. But, you know, don't give up what you've built, man, fight for it. And, you know, even if it, it turns out to be some legal bills in the end, I mean, who cares? I mean, it's worth it. You know, don't give up what you've, what you've spent all this time and effort building just so, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can uh, signal to everyone that you care about everyone because that, that's a BS story. You know, the, the only way you care is if you wash your hands, wear a mask and, and stay six feet apart from people and, and, and limit your leaving the house as much as possible. I mean, that's, the, that's probably the biggest joke of all. If you've ever seen uh, red dye, a drop of red dye into a bucket of water, you know that these masks and uh, uh, distancing, you know that's just a bunch of BS, you know. The, anyway, I, I don't know what more I can say about that, but... Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. Okay, okay. And then we can talk about it in another episode. But there is a growing body of clinicians, researchers out there questioning the pandemic. So stay tuned. Yeah, so is that science? Does that, mm-hmm. does that I mean, does that, can we do air quotes around that science too? You know? <laughs> no, I think that is a legit. Yeah, remember the science is never settled. That's what makes it science. Yes. Okay. All right. That is it for the Collective Resistance Podcast. Thank you, and we will see you next time. This is Leo and Fabi. Out. Out. Out.